Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 191, Lost Victories. No new patrons since I recorded the last episode, which means we're getting right into it. Now, last time, we discussed the general situation at the start of the First Balkan War, noting how the Balkan states were swept up in a wave of nationalistic enthusiasm for the war, in pretty stark contrast to the feelings in the Ottoman Empire. We went over the sizes of various armies, noting that Bulgaria fielded by far the largest force of the Balkan League, but had to commit most of these forces to the Thracian front, while Serbia focused on taking Macedonia. The Greek navy would then focus on preventing Ottoman reinforcements from coming by sea as the Greek army moved up into Epirus and Macedonia. And, well, there you go. Now, when the war began, the Bulgarian army made substantial gains in Thrace, encircling Adrianople and conquering the miraculously undefended fortress at Lozengrad. Thus, within the first week, Bulgaria had already achieved a decisive victory. However, they hesitated to exploit it, which gave the Ottomans time to regroup. This success also convinced Bulgarian political leaders to shift their focus from a diplomatic end to the war to a military one. So, with that, let's start covering the other fronts during that first same week before covering the second week of the war. So while all that had been going on in the Rodopi Mountains, about 25,000 Bulgarian soldiers advanced south towards the Aegean with the aim of potentially cutting the rail link between Constantinople and Thessaloniki, or at the very least kind of distracting uh, the Ottomans and kind of taking some key territory. If they could succeed in cutting this link, they would effectively isolate hundreds of thousands of Ottoman soldiers in Macedonia. Although, frankly, the Ottomans were doing a pretty good job at that because the Ottomans, you know, they had some decent rail links in this area, but at the start of the war, they fired all the non-Muslim employees of their rail companies because they kind of questioned their loyalty and everything. And as a result, the kind of Muslim people who were brought in to replace them had almost no experience, let alone the amount of experience necessary to run the very, very strict tight timetables you want in order to use your rail network as effectively as possible in a wartime situation. So, although the Ottomans did have those rail links, they were operating far from their, you know, ideal capacity. Anyway, so that was kind of the goal of this Rodopi detachment moving south. They were faced by about 20,000 or so Ottomans, but they, the Ottomans basically offered very little resistance and gradually retreated to the southeast during the early days of the war. In other words, they retreated kind of towards Thrace and Constantinople. As a result, Kurgely was captured on October 11th and Smolian the day after. So, while the main army was winning the Battle of Lozengrad, steady progress was being made in the Rudopi. In those same days, the Bulgarian 7th Rila Division quickly captured Gorna Jumaya, modern Blagoevgrad, as they rushed south along the banks of the Struma River with the goal of taking Thessaloniki before the Greeks. Now, with those two discussed, we're kind of finished up with the Bulgarians in the first week, we can look at the Serbs in Macedonia. 
As always, because we're talking about a war with a lot of complex moving parts and things, I highly recommend you check out some of the images and maps I've attached to the blog post, uh, and that will help you see kind of where Serbia is invading from and where these locations are. But crucially, Serbia is invading both from its own territory, but also from Bulgarian territory around Kustendil. As I mentioned in the last episode, Nazim Pasha had decided that the Ottoman troops should go on the offensive early on with the idea that this would disrupt the Balkan League plans, gain the initiative, and possibly enable the Ottomans to achieve a diplomatic end to the war before it dragged on, because as we know, none, no one involved in this war is prepared for a long, drawn, drawn-out affair. After all, the Ottomans were stretched quite thin as the war with Italy had sort of just ended uh, or was about to end. I got a little confused in which calendar I was using. All the dates for the the Balkan Wars, I end up using the old dates, but it got very confusing because a lot of sources use different calendars and a lot of them don't specify which one they're using. So if I made any mistakes, apologies. But yeah, the, the war with Italy is basically over. But in reality... This meant that outnumbered Ottoman forces were, you know, the fact that the Ottomans were trying to attack, that they were leaving prepared defenses to go on the attack, depriving them of a lot of the benefits of defense, which, I mean, you think about it, you would think that the Ottomans would be able to mount a pretty good defense in Macedonia because the terrain really favors it. Macedonia, as we've seen, you know, countless times in this podcast, going all the way back to the first Bulgarian empire is extremely mountainous, uh, very rough terrain, which should really favor the defense. But by, you know, rushing in the attack and then being forced to be pushed back, the Ottomans were never able to kind of form a lot of really strong, firm defenses to really take advantage of that terrain. Also, The fact that the Ottomans were sort of trying to make these quick attacks at the beginning meant that they were placing themselves in forward positions with more vulnerable flanks. Anyways, though, the result of this was much like in Thrace, the Serbs initially advanced without meeting much resistance the first few days of the war, and then they encountered more stiff Ottoman resistance. In this case, by the fourth day, Ottoman and Serbian forces clashed amidst very thick fog near Kumanovo. The Ottomans initially found success via a surprise attack on Serbian units who hadn't realized the enemy was nearby in strength. Uh, I think I talked about last time that the Serbs expected a decisive battle to happen around, I think the name's Ovce Pole, but you know, basically uh, Sheep Field uh, is the name of the place. But so at this point, the Serbs had not reached the place where they thought the decisive battle was going to happen. So they weren't expecting to encounter serious resistance just yet. But by the end of the first day, both sides were, you know, they had skirmished a bit, gone back and forth, but then the first day, they're both back in their original positions. Now, the Serbs here actually outnumbered the Ottomans about two to one, which the Ottomans definitely didn't expect. And if they had known, they probably wouldn't have attacked. But again, the the, the Serbs still had not expected to meet serious resistance this far north. And as a result, yeah, the Serbs had not yet brought artillery and soldiers into position. You know, once they started fighting the Ottomans, a lot of their other units didn't realize fighting had started. So it was very kind of chaotic on both sides with both sides not quite realizing how many soldiers were on the other side and kind of what was happening. Now, the next day, the Serbs repulsed an early Ottoman attack and ultimately advanced. 
a local official in Kumanovo reported at the situation of the railway station in the town, writing, quote, The most terrible events erupted in Kumanovo. Turks began beating Christians and Christians Turks. Most of the Christians hid at home. As the Serb bombardment approached, the earth began to shake and the windows began to shatter. The first Turk division ran amuck through the town in chaotic retreat. They had no guns, open wounds without tourniquet, maimed, blood-soaked, and barefoot. Serbian shrapnel began falling on the station and the railway personnel scattered as if being shot at like sparrows. End quote. So it gives you some idea of the chaos in Kumanovo as the Ottomans are beginning to withdraw. Within hours, Ottoman forces were generally fleeing towards Stip, Veles, and Skopje. However, by the end of that day, all these cities, as well as Kumanovo itself, were effectively in Serbian hands, forcing the Ottomans to retreat sort of south and to the west with the general Ottoman plan at this point to withdraw towards southern Albania. This also meant that even within the first week, the Serbs were firmly in control of most of the disputed territory that was supposed to be allocated between Serbia and Russia based, uh, sorry, Serbia and Bulgaria based on Russian arbitration. And well, I said it before and uh, say it again, ownership is what 90%, 95% of the law. And you know, when it comes to deciding who's going to get territory afterwards, the person who's currently controlling it has a significant upper hand. So the fact that the Serbs have very quickly managed to take all this territory that was supposed to be disputed is quite meaningful. So overall, in essence, the Ottomans had gone on the offensive, but this had resulted in an immediate defeat, which greatly hurt their morale and transformed much of their army in Macedonia into a disorderly mass of disorganized retreating soldiers. There was even an attempted assassination of the Ottoman defend or commander who led this defeat, which further contributed to the sense of panic. However, much like in Thrace, the Serbs failed to appreciate just what an opportunity they had gained through their victory. Instead of adjusting their plans to take advantage of the Ottoman loss at Kumanovo, their forces re returned to their original plan, failing to press their advantage. Hutton writes how, quote, the battle was characterized by a total failure of intelligence on both sides, the Serbs being hamstrung by their obstinate belief that Ovchipolje would be the decisive battleground, end quote. So as I basically said before, right, intelligence on both sides was terrible. Both sides had very little idea of what was happening or what really the ramifications of the Battle of Kumanovo were, and the Serbs refused to deviate from their original plan. The day after the battle, a Serbian soldier described the scene at that same train station in the town, writing, quote, In the morning, we went down to the train station in Kumanovo. Captured Turks, the Turkish people, women, children, everything was crowded there. The trains were not running. One freight train was full of wounded, another full of dead Turks. Blood dripped from the wagon onto the rails. End quote. Another Serbian soldier described the scene, writing, quote, the horrors actually began as soon as we crossed the old frontier. By 5 p.m. we were approaching Kumanovo. The sun had set. It was starting to get dark. But the darker the sky became, the more brightly the fearful illumination of all the fire stood out against it. Burning was going on all around us. Entire Albanian villages had been turned into pillars of fire. In all its fiery monotony, this picture was repeated the whole way to Skopje. 
For two days before my arrival in Skopje, the inhabitants had woken up in the morning to the site under the principal bridge over the Vardar, that is, in the very heart of the town, of heaps of Albanian corpses with severed heads. Some said that these were local Albanians killed by the Chetniks, others that the corpses had been brought down the bridge by the waters of the Vardar. What was clear was that these headless men had not been killed in battle. End quote. Indeed, on all fronts of this war, civilians were facing brutalities. The Carnegie Report, which compiled by a kind of early NGO, and which I'll talk about, I'm sure, towards the end of the coverage in the Balkan Wars, recounted an incident where, quote, a woman of Khaskovo described how her little child was thrown up in the air by a Turkish soldier who caught it on the point of his bayonet. Other women told how three young girls threw themselves into a well after their fiancés were shot. At Varna, about 20 women living together confirmed this story and added that the Turkish soldier went down into the well and dragged the girls out. Two of them were dead, a third had a broken leg. Despite her agony, she was outraged by two Turks. Other women of Varna saw the soldier who had transfixed the baby on his bayonet carrying it in triumph across the village. End quote. But again, all sides were committing atrocities. Bulgarians blew up mosques as they advanced, with one British journalist commenting that, quote, the track of the Bulgarian army in Thrace is marked by 80 miles of ruined villages, end quote. The Greek crown prince specifically ordered Muslim villages to be destroyed because he claimed people in them were shooting at Greek soldiers. Serbs in particular committed atrocities against Albanians, and all sides took terrible retribution on their enemies, real and perceived. Sometimes these atrocities were committed by regular soldiers, other times by irregular Cheta or Chetnik units. In Skopje, for example, the Black Hand, a Serbian group later famous for the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was the main perpetrator. Elsewhere, Chetniks helped the Serbs enact their own justice. For example, over 100 Cheti of the Via Maro, some 16 or 17,000 men, helped the Serbs liberate Macedonia. Though I don't have any specific examples of atrocities from them, but you know you can imagine you combine the kind of nationalistic fervor, the the pent up anger and aggrievement, uh, with the fact that you know a lot of these are not official soldiers, members of armies, and so they're not kind of subject to military discipline, military justice, and you can see how the Balkan war, wars were really just a, a perfect recipe for these kinds of atrocities. Now note, recall that by this time the VMRO had embraced a Bulgarian identity once again, which sort of contributes to the irony of the situation that they were now aiding Serbia in liberating Macedonia, unaware that the Serbs had no intention of surrendering an inch of it back to Bulgaria. But, you know, how were they supposed to know that? Now, the quick advances of Serbia in Bulgaria meant that, according to Misha Gleni, quote, both the Serbian and Bulgarian armies were now discussed with respect in Germany, Austria-Hungary, Russia, France, and Britain, end quote. But while Serbian and Bulgarian forces had been moving quickly while decisively defeating their Ottoman opponents, the Greeks faced a little more trouble. In general, the main question the Greek forces faced was whether they should focus their efforts on taking Thessaloniki or on trying to take Bitola and securing southern Macedonia. The army wanted to focus on Thessaloniki, while the crown prince wanted to focus on Macedonia. 
Prime Minister Venizelos sided with the army, and so that's where the focus would be. The king also sided with Venizelos, and essentially all of this began a rift between the crown prince and Venizelos, which will grow with time and become quite important later. A key difference in the Ottoman forces opposing the Greeks was that their commander was firmly set on a defensive strategy instead of foolishly trying to sort of attack at the onset of hostilities. So the Greeks didn't have the advantage of bad leadership implementing a bad strategy. However, that said, the Ottomans had assumed the main thrust would not be towards Thessaloniki, and so they were still somewhat unprepared for the Greek approach to the war. The Ottomans also basically didn't think the Greeks posed a threat because the Ottomans had defeated them so easily back in 1897. But although the Greek army is definitely behind those of Serbia and Bulgaria, as I talked about last time, they have made some real strides since then. Now, there was some major fighting on the second day of the Greek advance, but as on other fronts, the first major battles happened around four days after the war began, in this case at the Sarantaporos Pass which controlled access into Macedonia. The battle there lasted all day in the rain, notably the same rain falling on Bulgarian troops fighting around Lozengrad at the same time. Determined Greek assaults ultimately broke the Ottoman lines, forcing them to abandon equipment and supplies as they retreated north. However, the Greek exhaustion and difficult supply situation, particularly owing to the rain, again, similar situation all over the various fronts, meant the Greeks could not pursue the Ottomans to finish them off. So, at nearly the same time, the Greeks won at Sarantopoulos, the Bulgarians at Lozengrad, and the Serbs at Kumanovo. And in all three cases, the Balkan armies failed to capitalize on their victories to inflict a truly decisive defeat on the Ottomans. Of course, the key difference was that while the retreating Ottomans in Macedonia had no prospect for reinforcements, those retreating in Thrace were only getting closer to their supplies and shortening the front that they would have to defend. So while all three Balkan armies essentially made similar mistakes, that mistake was far more serious for the Bulgarians. Now, on the western side in Epirus, kind of northwestern Bulgaria, getting into southern Albania, uh, bordering the Ionian Sea, the Greeks advanced slowly over very difficult terrain towards the port of Preveza, where two Greek torpedo boats managed to attack two Ottoman warships in the heart on the first day of the war, taking them out of action. Otherwise, though, Epirus had some resistance, but no real major battles in the first two weeks of the war, so there isn't that much else to say about this particular front. Otherwise, at sea, the Greeks seized the island of Tenedos, near, very close to where the Bosphorus meets the Aegean Sea. Uh, the island is actually part of Turkey today, not part of Greece. It's one of the few Aegean islands the Turks control. But its strategic location right by the entrance to the Bosphorus meant that it enabled the, uh, it well, basically enabled the Greeks to prevent the Ottoman navy from exiting the Bosphorus into the Aegean in order to provide reinforcements for their troops in Macedonia. The next day, the Greeks landed on the much larger island of Lemnos, further strengthening their position in that area around the entrance to the Bosphorus. But it would take them about six days of fighting to fully take control of the island. Now, what all this meant was that the only place where the Ottomans could reinforce their armies was across the Bosphorus, which they still controlled. In other words, 
only the Ottoman armies facing the Bulgarians in Thrace could get reinforcements. The Ottoman armies facing the Greeks and the Serbs were effectively cut off almost from the beginning of the war. Now, the last area to cover in this kind of first week of the war is in the northwest, where Montenegro and Serbia were fighting in the Sanjak of Novi Pazar, Kosovo, and northern Albania. Now, as we know, Montenegro's declaration of war came earlier than everyone else, in this case, according to the old calendar, on the 25th of September, and on the 26th, their forces began to advance along Lake Skutari, now called Lake Škodra in Albanian, so you'll see both names, towards the fortress of the same name. The Montenegrins advanced while facing moderate resistance for about five days before they stopped to rest. That pause gave the Ottomans time to reinforce the fortress with about 8,000 additional troops. So when Montenegrin troops resumed their attacks the day the other Balkan states entered the war, well, the Ottomans were quite prepared. Montenegrins moving on both sides of the lake, and you can see a picture of the fortress today uh, on the website and get an idea of what it's like. I visited there, I think, in 2009, but I barely remember. But anyways, the, the, the fortress is on a kind of hill next to this lake, and so the Montenegrins reached it from both banks of the lake from two sides and began to lay siege. The first major assault on the fortress came on the 11th, the day the Serbs won the Battle of Kumanovo, but it failed, owing largely to a lack of artillery and the fact that Montenegrin forces on either side of the lake attacked separately instead of all at once, allowing the Ottomans to move reinforcements between sectors wherever they were needed. Four days later, the Montenegrins tried another major assault, but it also failed. Again, this showed the difference between Montenegro and its Balkan allies, particularly Serbia and Bulgaria. While Serbia and Bulgaria had invested heavily in modern artillery and training, tiny Montenegro still fielded an army that was essentially from another era. The failure to take the fortress was additionally frustrating because Montenegro desperately wanted to advance past it to take the northern Albanian port of Dores because, well, this may sound odd, I was surprised by it, but you, know, you think about Montenegro before, you probably think about its famous ports of Bar and Kotor, and you think of it having a coastline. But at this point, both of those cities and their ports were controlled by Austria-Hungary. So while Montenegro at this point did possess a small stretch of coastline, it had no port and therefore no functional access to the sea, which is a really big deal for trade and all these kinds of things. I've attached a map of Montenegro. It's from a slightly different time period, but it shows basically the same borders, and you can see what I'm talking about. The same day the Montenegrins began to advance towards Scutari, they also entered the Sanjak of Novi Pazar, a strip of Ottoman territory which separated them from Serbia and which both states desperately wanted to control. While the Montenegrins were initially somewhat hesitant because they feared Austro-Hungarian intervention because Novi Pazar had a small border with Bosnia and Herzegovina, which was controlled by them, they eventually realized that the Austro-Hungarians weren't going to intervene and advanced, defeating an Ottoman counterattack on October 10th. This victory enabled the Montenegrins to advance into Kosovo, although the Serbs by this point had already taken its main city of Pristina the day before. Overall, Montenegro was the only Balkan state to not experience any major success in the first stage of the war. They were still laying siege to Skutari, and had only taken a portion of the Sanjak of Novi Pazar because of weeks lost hesitating over intervention. Now, to be fair, the Serbs also 
kind of were very hesitant entering Novi Bazar because they also feared Austro-Hungarian intervention, but they were ultimately faster and able to take its main kind of goals. Uh, in this case, Prizren. So, in other words, the two main goals of Montenegro at this for the early stage of the war, which were Prizren and Scutari, were both still out of reach, with the Serbs having taken the latter and the Montenegrins struggling with the former. These failures created deep frustration with the leadership of Montenegro's king and crown prince. Okay, so taking a step back, we've now covered roughly the first eight days of the war, not including Montenegro, whose war started early. Everyone but the Montenegrins has experienced major victories against the Ottomans. Ottoman forces in Macedonia are largely retreating towards southern Albania, while their forces in Thrace are regrouping around a new defensive line near Luluburgas. So getting back to the Bulgarians in Thrace. Following their victory at Lozengrad, Bulgarian forces rested for about three days due to supply problems and concerns that the Ottomans outnumbered the Bulgarians, and so a hasty attack they feared might be disastrous. But again, this gave the Ottomans time to bring up substantial reinforcements and get settled on their new defensive line, which ran about 20 miles between Luluburgas and Bunihisar. A stream and a ridge provide good defensive ground, and the Ottomans were able to dig trenches and generally restore order to their army while they awaited the inevitable Bulgarian attack. Also, to understand those you know, Bulgarian supply problems and things, remember you're dealing with armies that are still largely transporting things with horses and wagons and things. And it's been raining a lot. And so roads are choked with mud. You know, it's just terrible conditions for logistics. So after resting, the Bulgarians resumed their advance on October 14th. Bulgarian generals Savov and Fichev had wanted to wait even longer out of those concerns I just mentioned while General Dmitriev had wanted to attack earlier to take advantage of that Ottoman disorganization. On the 15th, Bulgarian forces reached the new Ottoman defensive line and the Battle of Luluburgas began. That night, a frost came and reminded the soldiers on both sides that, despite all the rain and things, all the fall weather, winter was fast approaching. Now, at Luluburgas, the Ottomans did indeed outnumber the Bulgarians, about 130,000 to 110,000. But the Bulgarians still had an opportunity to quickly overwhelm their opponents. However, the Bulgarian Third Army advanced more quickly than the First Army, and as a result, these two armies did not manage to attack the Ottoman lines at once. Hall, for his part, speculates that if they had, they likely would have overwhelmed the Ottoman defenses and achieved a far more decisive victory. Instead, the Ottomans and Bulgarians clashed for the next four days while heavy rains drenched everyone. But the Ottomans defending this line were quite different to those the Bulgarians had faced earlier. Morale and training were higher, leading a Bulgarian lieutenant to remark that, quote, Here the Turks showed themselves to be real soldiers, who knew how to die for their country. Now they shoot quickly and accurately and hold tenaciously to their positions, end quote. An additional problem was that Bulgarian high command had decided to commit most of Bulgaria's heavy artillery pieces to the siege of Adrianople instead of using them to attempt to advance on Constantinople. The thinking was that the Bulgarians doubted the Russians would support their annexation of Adrianople, but if they were able to actually capture it before the war concluded, they'd have a much better shot of gaining the city in the peace deal. 
So despite the terrible weather and the lack of heavy artillery, Bulgarian tenacity won the day. And on the night of October the 20th, the Ottomans retreated. Now, while again, heavy artillery was in short supply, the artillery the Bulgarians did have was put to good use with a, with a British observer writing how, quote, for every battery, the Turks seemed to have an action. The Bulgarians were able to produce half a dozen. And whereas the Turkish fire was desultory and ill-directed, the Bulgarian shells burst in a never-ceasing storm on the Turkish positions with a maximum of effect. In fact, the enemy seemed to have so little respect for the Turkish batteries that they seldom directed their fire against them, but concentrated it on the infantry, who suffered enormous losses and became sadly demoralized." End quote. And so with the Ottoman retreat, the Bulgarians had won their second major victory in as many weeks. The Ottomans had once again fallen victim to poor leadership and an inability to act decisively, as all my sources noted that Adrianople was not yet totally surrounded by besieging forces. So to think about this, Adrianople was cut off, but Bulgarians hadn't sort of surrounded with forces facing inward. And so if the Ottoman forces in Adrianople had, you know, basically left the city or, or, or kind of done uh, an attack out of the city to attack the rear of the Bulgarians facing the line at Lulburgas, they likely could have inflicted a crippling blow on the Bulgarians. But they stuck inside their fortress. Now, with their victories, the Bulgarians now had Russian support for annexing Adrianople. However, at the same time, the Bulgarians were no longer interested in obtaining a Russian-mediated peace. As I mentioned, you know, that was already from the victory at Lozengrad, and the victory at Lulu-Burgas really reinforced this. Instead, the Bulgarians were now determined to push on and take Constantinople before imposing their own peace terms. But of course, the cost was high. The Battle of Luluburgas led to around 20,000 killed and wounded on both sides and was the largest battle fought in Europe between 1871 and the beginning of the First World War in 1914. That back courtesy of the Great War YouTube channel's excellent video on the Balkan Wars, which I will link to in the blog post for this episode. Cold, wet, exhausted, and disorderly, Ottoman soldiers now fled towards Constantinople, overwhelming infrastructure and spreading disease. Alongside them, Turkish refugees fled the Bulgarian onslaught and further overburdened the already poor transportation system. However, once again, the Bulgarians failed to pursue the Ottomans, instead pausing to rest. Hall points out that the cavalry was rested, even though they had not participated in the fighting at Luluburgas, and that had the Bulgarian cavalry pursued the Ottomans, again, they likely could have taken Constantinople with minimal resistance, as by this moment, there was no effective Ottoman force standing between them and the capital. Now, historian E.R. Hooten provides some context in his book on the Balkan Wars, writing of the Bulgarians that, quote, their two victories over Abdullah Pasha convinced them of the superiority of their troops and led them to underestimate their enemies with terrible consequences. Yet, there were good reasons to rest. The men were exhausted, the roads were appalling, and even the Bulgarian supply system was strained by the pace of warfare and the growing distance from supply depots." End quote. Now, crucially, this was also the moment that Bulgarian planning ended. No one had envisioned fighting all the way to Constantinople, and so the Bulgarian general staff was from this point onward effectively improvising. 
Now, one last thing to mention. While the Battle of Luluburgas was raging, the Bulgarians marked the first ever military use of aircraft in Europe. Now, recall the Italians had the, had had the first ever use of them in their recent war with the Ottomans, but this is the first time they were used in Europe. Now, this first instance was an intelligence-gathering mission over the besieged city of Adrianople, with Bulgarian pilots having received training in France during the previous summer. Evidently, the sight of the plane caused understandable fear among the defenders, who were almost certainly seeing a plane for the first time, and you could imagine if you're in a fortress behind walls with cannons and things, seeing your enemy fly above you is probably very scary, even if you know, they couldn't appreciate the fact that uh, you know airplanes at this time were hardly able to inflict a lot of damage or anything, but still, it uh, affected morale. And that's where I'll wrap up this episode. The war is now about two weeks old, again, counting from when Bulgaria, Serbia entered the war, not Montenegro, and the Ottomans have suffered a series of decisive defeats. Their troops in Macedonia and Albania are cut off, and with the exception of some fortresses like Skutari, their forces there are retreating. Now, the Bulgarian armies are once again advancing towards Constantinople as Tsar Ferdinand is beginning to dream of crowning himself in the Queen of Cities. So next time, we'll cover the next stage of the war and see where all of this goes. You won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out the podcast website, bghistorypodcast.com, for a lot more information about this and all other episodes, and I'll catch you in the next one.